0: at issue for all women.
1: Hello, Jen here to tell you about this week's episode of The Sunday Chops. This week I chatted to Dr Catherine McCormack, art historian, independent curator and author of the new book, Women in the Picture, Women, Art and the Power of Looking. As well as that, she's also the founder and course leader of the Women and Art Study Program at Sotheby's Institute of Art. And as such, well placed to talk to me about representations of women on and um, behind the canvas. In front probably makes more sense in that context. Anyway, we had a really interesting chat about just that, as well as how men have written their narrative when it comes to women's bodies. The difference between liberation and exploitation and um, Nuts magazine. Catherine was absolutely fascinating and I hope you enjoy listening as much as I enjoyed chatting to her. I am joined by Dr Catherine McCormack, art historian and independent curator, also founder of the Women in Art Study Programme at Sotheby's Institute of Art, where she teaches on art, race and gender. Hello Catherine.
0: Hello Jen.
1: You are here To talk primarily about your new book, Women in the Picture Women, Art and the Power of Looking. So, we're going to talk about that in a second, but I am quite interested in that course that you have founded. I wondered if you could tell me a little bit about the course and and what kind of things you cover in it.
0: Absolutely, I'd be delighted to talk about it. So, um, I've worked as a lecturer in art history for well over a decade and before that I worked in schools as a secondary school teacher and while I was doing my PhD I started working at Sotheby's Institute which is in Bedford Square around the corner from UCL and I taught across all different courses um, on foundations of Western art, art and business and I also taught on the summer study programmes and I recognised that there was a what I saw a sort of gaping absence for something that specifically focused not just on women art artists and bear in mind this was 2018 where, well I first proposed the course in 2017 and it was just the beginnings of a different kind of whispering within the art world and in the media about turning a focus onto women artists and recognising that there had been this relative invisibility. So I proposed the course and very luckily they said yes I could do it and Sotheby's is a lovely place to work and they sort of let me just, they gave me a sort of basement room and I just really got on with teaching this quietly radical course. So the sorts of things that we cover are primarily thinking about women artists as creators. So from very early moments in art history, from antiquity, of which there are very, very few artists that we can name anyway, and even fewer women artists, um, but really starting maybe in the Renaissance period and recovering in a way these names that aren't so familiar to the general interest audience of art history or in fact ones that don't even get taught on university degree programmes. I spent the majority of a degree and a master's and a master's and PhD is a little bit different because you get to specialise in things that you seek out yourself but certainly as an undergraduate I don't think I encountered any women artists um, in the course of a sort of three to four year degree and that was in the early 2000s Um, and I know that that is very similar for a lot of other people within my field who are teachers. There's very few women on the art history syllabuses that get taught at a level again if there are they tend to be the ones that are household names that people kind of over determine their familiarity with people like Frida Kahlo who then inspires a big fashion range and sort of lots of merchandise or uh, people who have a kind of notoriety about them like someone like Tracy Emin so I wanted to create a course that actually looked in depth at women artists But at the same time, think about how women have been represented by men throughout art from earliest antiquity through to the contemporary so that is the kind of overarching thing themes within within the course and within that I focus on other um, special areas so for example I have a special interest in depictions of maternity and pregnancy and birth which I write about in the book and also sort of interesting thematics such as sort of how women maybe have worked with cloth and fibre and transformed something that was a material that was thought of as a uh, feminine and of the lower arts and associated with embroidery and artisanship and lace making and how they politicised it in those ways. So it's um, quite wide reaching and it's a really immersive sort of slap in the face. People tend to finish the two week course going, like holding on to their seats (laughs) and and feeling quite radicalised. I think in my experience, I've had such great feedback that people have said that they really start to see things around them differently, which is amazing feedback. So, yeah, that's a lot of that has gone into the book as well.
1: I think that's kind of one of the things, isn't it, with feminism in general, like when you have your light bulb moment, as it were, once you start seeing things, it's really hard not to see them everywhere, I guess. <laughs> Certainly that's that was my kind of experience of it. But anyway, moving on to the book, which is also pretty radical, it, you open with... A lovely anecdote about being mansplained to in a gallery by a guy who is offering you his unsolicited opinion, and, and you tell him that you're an art historian because you sort of you you know you want him to bog off basically, uh, and yet he continues. Guessing from that anecdote and from an astounding stat in your book, which is that of the 2,300 paintings in the National Gallery, 21 of them. Are by women. I'm, I'm sort of taking from that that the art world is pretty male, pale, and stale, as they say.
0: Well, you're absolutely right, and especially within a collection that deals exclusively in sort of earlier centuries so the National Gallery's collection finishes at around 1900 you'll find a much bigger proportion I mean much bigger relatively to the 21 out of 2300 in collections that are more of the 20th century and 21st century art but yes it's a widespread disparity uh, within the representation and visibility of female creators and I you know, people might think, well, it's just artists, it doesn't really matter that much, what's the big deal? You know, women can be, could be lawyers and women have, and and doctors and uh, CEOs of companies, and women have this kind of sort of semblance of equality. But I think what's reflected within those collections where you have an absence of female vision, uh, visionaries and creators, is that we're only getting a very one-sided view of the representation of our history. And that does not just relate to gender, but it also relates to race. Mm. So that's something else which I think is really important. This is a conversation that we're having about collections as well, is this idea of whose who's vision are we are we privileging, yeah. whose vision most visible. Um, and it has been the pale, stale male. It has been at the suppression of uh, women artists and women creators. It's not just the National Gallery by any means, it's really widespread. However, the National Gallery is a place that I've been going to for, you know, three decades. And I noticed that they didn't seem to be sort of responding to the new currents in redressing this balance until very recently where they had their first ever exhibition of a woman artist a solo show of a woman artist and that was Artemisia Gentileschi and actually in the process of writing the book they acquired a new painting by a woman Artemisia Gentileschi but I think there's an awful lot of work to be done and actually I just read their uh, the press release for their um sort of vision for the next couple of years and i was really surprised that there was not any mention of wanting to acquire more work by women artists can
1: i just go back to that for a second because uh, i just want to check that i've understood that properly since you started work on the book in the last couple of years the national gallery has had its first ever solo exhibition by 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 a woman artist
0: Correct. And that was a year ago. So it uh, it was a bit stop start. Um, But yes, correct. That was their first ever solo show by a woman
1: artist. I feel like I want to quote Ted Hastings here and say Jesus, Mary and Joseph and the (laughs) wee donkey. That is astounding. Mm -hmm. Wow.
0: I think it speaks volumes about the sorts of values and the sorts of ideas about taste and heritage that we've acquired because the National Gallery is somewhere which is it's sort of and I write about this in the book the place it occupies in Trafalgar Square is very much at the heart of the city the heart of the establishment you can see Big Ben as you walk out of the portico at the exit it is somewhere which is a you know a very frequent and regular spot for school kids to visit you know it's on it's kind of curriculum based in that way it's meant to be the nation's collection but really it's a nation's collection of work by men and within it there are lots of paintings that I find such as the one I discussed in the introduction that was mansplained to me, ones that really give us a very troubling idea of male violence towards yeah. women um, and an aestheticisation of
1: that. One of the things you actually mentioned in the book is that, and I, I didn't know this, that the location of the National Gallery is because it is the nation's gallery and the idea was that it was to make art accessible to everyone and it was sort of in the middle between like the the posh bit in the in west london and the uh, not so posh bit in east london i live in east london now it's an absolutely arty paradise now but obviously back then it was not so much and so the idea was to make art accessible to everyone and and one of the things there obviously you've said that the national gallery is more Of sort of its older paintings and if you go to other places now and you'd see greater representation of women you'd see greater representation of of ethnic minority artists what about class are we seeing more representation of working classes for example in art in in those more modern places
0: it's in some ways a quite a long question to answer because There's more accessibility to become an artist now, certainly in the period in which the National Gallery's collection is concerned with, it was inevitably to be an artist was inevitably a profession that depended on having some sort of private income and mm. access you know so that you did you know if you will if you're working you can't be an artist you know if you're kind of plowing a field if you're a labourer sure. or if you're yeah. working in other sort of trades meant trade type work so I think more recently there is greater access to art training. However. it it sort of opens up a can of worms when we think who can be an artist in our society in that it does require years at art college it requires probably spending a lot of time earning very very little income before you become if you might get your lucky break it's a bit like being a writer I suppose so I think class does is still a, an issue within access to becoming an artist as a, as a as a career however over the course of the 20th century especially the late 20th century I think that changed dramatically so you will find in maybe somewhere like the Tate Modern and certainly in the more contemporary and avant-garde art galleries that you might have in the East London epicentre, you'll find a different reflection of that. But I think class is definitely something to think about because class is the, the group or the upper classes, the privileged classes decided what it was good for us to look at, mm. what taste was, what we should hang in our homes if we want to emulate the kind of rich and aristocratic. And so we should like what they're liking.
1: Yeah and and this is one of the themes that again I'm going to come back to but who controls a who gets to look and and b like what what we see but I will come back to that in a minute so you you started to talk about it just then one of the things that you mentioned one of the kind of central points in the book is that in these older works, particularly, um, paintings often depict hideous acts of violence against women. And you say that the uh, explanatory wall text often casts like, no judgment, and I'll, I'll come back to that in a second as well. It's an interesting debate, I guess, and it's something that we sort of... I guess I'd liken a little bit to the debate that we were having last year and in recent years about statues. There's a difference between censorship and and sort of, you know, whitewashing history or whatever, and celebrating someone or something. So is the point that by, you know, by hanging a graphically offensive piece in a gallery, is that an act of celebrating it, basically? Mm-hmm. Or or even normalising it, I suppose?
0: Mm-hmm. I think it's, it's an excellent question, and I'm really glad you asked me that, because I'm thinking a lot about, instead of just putting forward the problems in the book, spending time thinking about, well, how can we How can we resolve this or how can we change this? And I think the issue of censorship is a really volatile one. And I think it's due to the, in my personal opinion, we have a unfamiliarity with the nuances of these debates in what we're looking at and what we're thinking about. Which means that as soon as someone says, oh, this is problematic because this is a picture of a violent rape that's hanging on a gallery wall um, in a prestigious environment where we're being encouraged to look at it as something of value once we start to trouble that quite often the response is oh well that's you know, we can't change the past. And this would, wh- where do we stop if we start to remove everything that offends anybody or triggers anybody's feelings negatively. And I think that we do have the intellectual capacity to see these things in a more nuanced way. So that, for example, contextualization is key. So some galleries have done this in, in different ways when they're dealing with sensitive material things that might be culturally sensitive for example there was an exhibition by an artist called chuck close who there were allegations of sexual harassment that he was so charged with allegations and so some collections and museums around the world that had work of his or were programming to show his work decided to shut it down not have anything to do with it Others took the opportunity to create displays about violence to open up the question to see things in a more nuanced and balanced way so that we can start to think about questions like the if the artist is seen as a monster can we still you know how do we separate the art from the artist can we appreciate the art of monstrous people it's the sort of thing that we're we're thinking about a little bit with people like Woody Allen and Roman Polanski can you still watch can you still enjoy Manhattan even if there is a very negative perception of Woody Allen's you know the allegations towards him of of incest and sexual abuse I know I'm talking more about artists in particular here now but I, I do think it's all related so we're used to seeing art in this kind of really commodified way this idea of culture as leisure so we go to the gallery or the museum and we dutifully go around look at the works on the wall sort of tick our boxes feel quite proud of ourselves and then go and get a coffee and a piece of cake and then spend some money in the bookshop and if you notice the way galleries and museums tend to be set out there's always you're always spat out into this mm, kind of yeah. commercial end point where you get your purse out and you buy something and i think that that stops us from having the i think we do have the intellectual capacity to see things in more nuanced ways i talk about it when i think about the rape of europa it's just a painting by titian that's been touring the world in mostly absent galleries in the past 12 months 12 18 months and i I think with that, it's not just a black and white case. I think that visually when something is disturbing, such as that, which is a woman being abducted and she's being taken off away from her family to be raped by the king of the gods, who's transformed into a bull and she's kind of writhing in desperation once we have the tools to and the encouragement to start looking a bit more critically and a bit more deeply at what's in front of us and not just ticking it off as our Saturday afternoon leisure activity then maybe we might be able to find the complexities within that now that's not an apology for what the depiction is but I think that within that painting as I analyse it in the book there is room to leverage that the artist himself is asking us like why are we taking pleasure in looking at this? Are uh, making us confront our own maybe voyeuristic pleasure in looking at you know an incident of of sexual violence and maybe throwing the light back on us? So we start to ask more interesting questions and ones that can sort of um, help us to learn more about who we are as a civilization and our relationship with images and what we celebrate and how we celebrate it, uh, rather than just saying good or bad, black or white, in or out, censored or freely
1: admired. Another point that we've already touched on and and is another sort of central point in the book is about who is in control of what is being seen and who gets to see it. I suppose. So um and I, I guess the answer to this historically has been that men made art for men, right? So one of the points that you make is that women are the subject of like erotically charged images, I think is is what you say. But they're not the creators of it, and that is the problematic aspect of it. Could you tell me a bit more about that?
0: That to me is so key, and it relates a bit to the idea of censorship because sometimes we think Oh, this is a feminist puritanical clampdown on anything to do with sex or desire, when really it's the opposite of that. So, as you rightly say, I think your inference that art has controlled women is, you know, it's a really bald statement. But I think to an extent, we could say that because the things I discuss in the book are the archetypes of womanhood that have been, you know, framed for women to follow as a model whether that's Venus or mothers or sort of damsels in distress. But thinking about that, the erotic content, I think if we look around us in art galleries and museums and even the things that trickle down into popular culture on, you know, on social media and on, in magazines and fashion photography, we do have an idea of what is sexy and what female sexuality is that derives from what we call the male gaze. So Mm. this idea that depictions of women seen as would be erotically inviting, to use those words, to a male heterosexual spectator. And I think that there's been a lot of examples that attempt to say to use that framework, but you have a woman creating a similar type of picture or an image of herself, And I think that that actually limits us because I think we're still using the language of the male gaze or we're borrowing from this framework of how women have always been represented in an erotic way to signify their sexuality when really it's not about their sexuality but it's about the sexuality of the person who's looking at it what they do for them now feminist art historians have written about this and feminist philosophers have written about this for you know half a century really in thinking about how Women don't necessarily have a language for expressing their sexuality and their desire in a way that is a female experience, in a way that doesn't borrow from something that has got a millennia of male artists and male creators behind it. And I think the thing I feel strongly, and I'm glad you said this because I actually made some notes about this. I hoped I get to talk about this. Yeah. <laughs> for me, I think that there is a difference between celebrating being sexually attractive and sexual and being sexually objectified. And I think a lot of images that, whether that's in high art and painting or whether that's in advertising or in the ways women are encouraged to represent themselves, teenagers even with sending photographs to other teen, you know, to teenage boys and the pressure to do that as has been unearthed by the confessionals of everyone's invited their sexuality is being expressed through being sexually objectified
1: because i think like we look at this kind of you know high art as you say and you know a lot of it the older stuff is all nudes and i think i think the point that you make in i think about the statue of aphrodite which is an ancient greek statue is that with a lot of the greek statues of men they're kind of like, you know, they're proud and they're strong and they're whatever, and these are the things that we're celebrating about them. Whereas with the Aphrodite statue, she's actually like, she's got her hands in front of her her lady area, in front of her vulva, shall we say, or her groin. I think what you're actually saying in the book is that she knows to be sort of ashamed of that, yeah. which I thought yeah. was a really interesting point because that's, you know, it, it's that thing that, we, you know, we're perpetually... Exposed to, I guess, as women is that we are supposed to be sexy, but not too sexy. She's sexy, but she's ashamed at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. And it's really interesting to me reading the stuff that you've written about that. And I wonder, like, although it is seen as high art, what is the difference r- really between a-, a nude Venus and a copy of Nuts magazine? Like, what? what, what? Well, I made that comparison
0: with, you know, relating our consumption of these images with the campaign to end page three and there was a specific example that I talk about in the book where there was a deputy at the Swedish assembly who wanted to get a painting on the ceiling of a nude generic nude female nude goddess I think it was her her boobs that were out which was a point in question rather than her vulva and I think actually just before we go on you can really notice that even we as you know, women who work in the public world with mm. ideas, we still have this, like, hesitation and discomfort about, saying covering her vulva, yeah, whereas exactly. I doubt men are going to say, feel similar about the word penis or dick or whatever you but but It interesting, doesn't have isn't
1: to it? say. Because I wouldn't feel uncomfortable saying he was covering his penis or he was covering his dick or, what, or whatever. I wouldn't feel uncomfortable mm-hmm. about that. Mm-hmm. But, like, mm-hmm. to struggle to find the word, even,
0: yes, for exactly. what is a, a
1: lady bit...
0: Exactly, and that is part of this whole absence of comfort with the desire about our own sexually mature bodies, and the alienation that I believe comes not just from images. I mean, I'm just using the images as a way into talking about these in a really accessible way. And it, you know, they come from religion, they come from other emphasis on different forms of morality over, you know, millennia. But you know. All of it amounts to the same thing, that women have been alienated from their bodies and their sexually mature bodies. So what was the real question you were saying about... What's the uh, difference? Yeah, sort of, can't be the difference It's a question that gets people into a lot of trouble and it got Mary Beard <laughs> into a lot of trouble on Twitter, which is a sort of snake pit of easily expressed opinions, isn't it? So um, if we think about the function of images so if you think about the function of a uh let's say nuts magazine which is now thankfully probably out of circulation i, be, I, I believe be it sure.
1: yeah, i believe it closed down a little while ago and okay. zoom as well but yeah
0: of, of that that nature magazines of that nature that really did characterize I think women's experience, certainly my own as someone who came of age in the 90s as a teenager, Mm -hmm. seeing that in the news, you know, the news agents, and that's what boys your age and young men your age are, are consuming, I think did have a huge effect on the expectations of how my body, I wanted my body to be or how I thought my body should be and certainly my peers if we think about the function of that magazine, that magazine's function was to entertain men to be mildly arousing, to stimulate their appetites sexually, and to make them feel masculine, to sort of like confirm and to support and bolster their idea of being a man. If we think about the reasons for, for the function of let's say, a Greek sculpture. It was a little bit different in terms of its inception. So with the sculpture of Aphrodite, it was made for a place of religious meditation. It was made for a sanctuary um, or it it existed in a sanctuary in Knidos. But as I write about in the book, which is the almost unbelievable story or hook is that Even in the fourth century, when it was put in place, people would go and travel to see it to masturbate on it. So even if the function of it was for something different to the Nuts magazine, the fact is, is that we have from the fourth century to today or till whenever Nuts magazine (laughs) demised. And there are others that have replaced Mm -hmm. it around the world and ones that are still going. You have this association of images of nude women's bodies with male masturbation or male sexual satisfaction and gratification so that does that kind of answer the question that yet they're not made for the same purpose but the consumption of them i don't think there's been a huge difference
1: so moving into the modern day fortunately a, a modern day that does not include nuts magazine most of the art in inverted commas or at least imagery that we consume now is in advertising or social media so instagram for example and there are sort of going back to what you talked about a little bit earlier there are no end of influencers and models etc etc on instagram in sexually provocative poses they are creators of their own narratives their own image which is the point that you make about you know the, the problems with earlier art but when you look at that kind of representation of I guess the female form and I want to caveat this with because I think that it is a woman's right to do whatever she wants to do with her body but when I look at something like that and I, I wonder how you feel about it do you have any thoughts on sort of like how far we've actually come? Oh
0: completely and I agree with you that within this structure and system and constraints that patriarchy has placed on women, any access they get to creating their own narrative is something that I would never criticise or call someone out for doing, um, because I think women's access to their own sexual self-identity or their general identity has been so controlled that you know to 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 choose to represent oneself in 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 whatever way one sees fit um, is not for me to judge however like I said I do think that we have because of the influence of Venus let's just say the influence of Venus and of millennia of images of women in which they are in poses that sexually objectify I mean we talked about this idea of the inviting but also hiding at the same time and the idea of shame I think that we haven't got a language that women can use to express themselves and their sort of sexual self-identity I think that there's you know there's other books that have come out at the moment as well about this idea of desire and female desire and the kind of um, the whole landscape of that being something that we we haven't yet got fluency in expressing and I really do think that's because we we can't differentiate between sexual objectification and sexual self-identity and expression I think we still fall back on that framework because that's the only one we have you know the female nude means sex love desire in across Instagram across uh the Victoria's Secret runway of lingerie Mm, models across 20th century Mm, paintings by Picasso and Modigliani who are you know consistently command multi- million pounds at auction and I think that's all we've got and that's why I think if we go back to what we're talking about at the beginning, this absence of women artists to give us an alternative, to give us something, a different model to identify with. And I think that is why it's really crucial that we have the contribution of women as writers, as artists, as thinkers who are penetrating the mainstream and giving examples, other ways to express ourselves that doesn't fall back on the male gaze.
1: Yeah, I completely completely agree. <laughs> I guess one of the good things about you know social media and things like that is that we, what we were talking about before with regards to class and I guess gender and race as well. One of the good things about the sort of digital age that people talk about a lot is that it's kind of removed the importance of gatekeepers basically and given everyone a platform to put their art be it you know words pictures, film, whatever it may be, to actually put it out there for people to see. Would you agree with that?
0: Yes, absolutely. I think if you get caught in the right algorithm, then you're onto a really good thing and you get this sort of, I mean, I use social media only for my work. I don't use it for personal life or friends or anything, pictures of my kids. I use it exclusively for work. And the amount that I gain by seeing what's out there and the hashtags that I follow is wonderful and it does um has been a hugely democratizing platform and it also allows people to get in touch with each other and it, it fosters collective coalitions that, you know based around a common interest whether from in my example that's feminism and um you know artists and writers who are working around that theme so yeah I think it it has the power for immensely positive interactions that take it away from the world of prestige and the elitism of the gallery yeah
1: With all of this in mind, obviously, fingers crossed, we are speaking on April the 29th. We are expecting sometime soon, galleries will open up again Mm -hmm. for public visitors, which is great. I've got Tate membership, which is honestly like the best thing ever because it's it's not cheap, but it does pay for itself after like a couple of exhibitions. So I'm looking forward to that. I'm looking forward to taking my little daughter, who is 10 months old, to look at some things as well in the, in the Tate, look at some bright colours. But I wondered if you had any thoughts on good things that we could see in exhibitions of a more perhaps diverse nature.
0: Definitely. Um, so actually Tate have got Paula Rego exhibition that opens in the summer and galleries and museums open on May the seventeenth for visitors. Oh. Um, so that's the kind of key dates, that's all the major public museums and yeah, as I mentioned, Paula Rego who is Portuguese born but lived in and still lives in Britain, so she's kind of has a, a dual identity so she's kind of considered to be part of the british art scene um her exhibition i'm really looking forward to especially because there's a a series called the abortion series of pastels that she made in response to a referendum to legalize abortion that was a quite a long time ago in Portugal that didn't go through, is subsequently did go through. But so she she sort of is creating a narrative that's normally quite hidden of women's experience and giving it sort of a visual platform. In terms of a more diverse range of exhibitions, there are some exhibitions that are open, one opened yesterday. So with contemporary galleries, there are, it's appointment only, so you can go to some smaller galleries by, by arrangement. And there's an artist who I'm really looking forward to go see at the Everard Reed Gallery, and it's Teresa Cotalla Fermino, And her work is thinking about the black female body. And that's something that I'm interested in writing about in the Venus chapter that I've thought about, this idea of how race really contributes to denigrating images and perceptions and discourses about black women and their sexuality. And so I'm really interested to see that. She's uh, from Joburg in South Africa, and she's also working with African objects and thinking about how they interact with European collections. So that ties into the conversations that big institutions and governments are having about what do we do with objects that are colonial kind of booty that we brought back into our galleries and museums and collections as a reflection of our status so that's one that I'm really looking forward to going and seeing Teresa Cattola-Fermino that's on I think uh, until late May so there'll be a chance to see that and then there are other things around the for an international audience I don't know if there's anyone in New York that might listen to this but there's also Lorena Grady uh, at the Brooklyn Museum that's on now and she was one of the women who started to interrupt in the 70s and the 80s the idea of, you know, race and who gets to, you know, who gets to choose what's on the walls of our galleries and how we even look at art and art history itself. She wrote a very important essay about a very famous painting in Paris called Olympia by Édouard Manet, uh, which is sort of a classic of art history, postcards, tote bags, you know, everywhere um screensavers and there's a black maid in that and she realized that throughout art history no one had really written about and engaged with that black maid and so she wrote an essay about that so those would be my things to to look out
1: for i've been to the brooklyn museum and it's lovely it's very nice <laughs> if anyone in new york is listening and and hasn't been there it's great strong <laughs> recommend it's quite cheap to get into as well as if i recall correctly <laughs> Just to say, I think with art, it has a bit of a reputation for being like a bit stuffy, a bit old fashioned, a bit male, uh, male, pale and stale. It's obvious from chatting to you, but also really comes across in your book as well, like the, the passion you have for the subject. So I absolutely <laughs> recommend anyone who is interested in such things having a read. And that is published on or was by the time this goes out published on May the 6th by Icon Books. Catherine, where can we follow you on the socials if we want to keep up with what you're up to?
0: It's very easy. Um, I'm on Instagram as women in the picture.
1: Brilliant. Catherine, thank you so much. It's been an absolute joy talking to you.
0: Thank you. Thanks for your interest. I have really enjoyed talking about it. Standard Issue for All Women